we can celebrate that together. We can celebrate an empty tomb, a reversal of all that emptiness normally means, and a celebration of what it means because Jesus is alive. I, I was reading this week uh, uh, a story from Ken Davis. We have uh, last year we had a speaker by the name of Ken Davis. This was a different Ken Davis. Uh, but this Ken Davis told a story that reminded me of Easter and just wanted to, to share it with you. A, a woman was looking out her, her window, seeing her backyard, and out of the corner of her eye, she spotted her dog. She had a pet German Shepherd. And that wouldn't normally uh, concern her, except this day, the dog, her German Shepherd, had something in her in his mouth that he was obviously playing with. And as she looked more closely, she saw that what was in, her, in his mouth, which he was going around like this, playing with it, uh, was in fact the neighbor's rabbit. Uh, the pet rabbit was in this uh, German shepherd's jaws. And that would al- always be a difficult thing to take. That would always be something that would cause concern, except on this particular, uh, with this particular neighbor, there had been terrible relations already, and she knew this would be absolute disaster. So she went into a panic. She, uh, knew, that she knew she needed to act fast. She grabbed a broom, the first thing that she could find, ran out the back door, hit the German shepherd with the broom, Uh, trying to get this rabbit out of his mouth. And she was successful. She was just a little too late. The rabbit dropped from his jaw to the ground, and it was clear the rabbit was very dead. Now she became really desperate. She carried the lifeless rabbit into her home, took him into the bathtub, and started to wash him off. She's scrubbing off, trying to, get, uh, trying to get the rabbit first clean. Then she takes a hairdryer to the rabbit. Then actually takes out a, uh, a comb and is combing out the hair. And by the end of it, she has the hair on this rabbit fluffed up. And he actually looks pretty good. He's looking alive. He's looking good. And she just needs to, to bring to pass the final step in her plan She carries the still lifeless rabbit quietly over to her neighbors, sneaks it into the cage, and props it up like nothing had happened. Well, she makes her way back to her home. She uh, takes about an hour for her nerves to calm down. She's finally feeling relaxed again when from the neighbor's yard she hears a scream. She composes herself, heads on over, thinking, I will try and try my best to console my neighbor. Uh, and she quite innocently asks, what happened? All she can hear at this point is the neighbor's crying and her screams. And she just repeats over and over again, my rabbit, my rabbit. And then she said, what, what's happened? What's, what's wrong? And she said, my rabbit died two weeks ago and we buried it. And now it's come back to life. <laughs> Now, I I mention that story because I fear that some of us here this morning may look at the Easter story a little bit like the neighbor looked at this fluffed-up rabbit. We're not sure we quite understand what's happened. 
We're not quite sure we know that this is a story that we can trust. And even if we overcome those two hurdles and we get the story, maybe we think it could be true, we're still not sure how this story could relate to our story. How something that happened some 2,000 years ago could have an impact in our lives today. And so that's my goal this morning, to take us back to that first Easter Sunday morning and to try to understand what that Easter morning means to us. To understand who this Savior is that we proclaim to be alive. And what does that even mean? And how does that change things? Uh, to, to do that, we're going to look to the scriptures this morning. I'm going to be in John chapter 20, and I'm going to read from verses 11 to 18. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to, to that section. Uh, if you'd like to use our pew Bibles, we're on page 852. And I'm going to read John 20, verses 11 to 18. John 20, verses 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Now I want to walk you through this passage this morning in three sections. We're going to look at Mary's, Mary's tears, Mary's Savior, and finally Mary's joy. But the passage starts in grief, starts with tears. And so that's where we'll, we'll start as we look at this passage. And when the scene opens in verse 11, you see Mary, and she's alone. Uh, she's alone weeping outside the tomb of Jesus. This isn't the Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, this is another Mary, a Mary who is called Mary Magdalene. And when we call her Mary Magdalene, many people assume, oh, Magdalene must be her last name. But it just means that she is Mary from Magdala, a city, and just uh, speaking to her origin and where she came from. We know from uh, the Gospels that she's the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. She has been freed by him. She has been experienced that release from him. And when we meet her, Although she's alone, she's not the only one that knows that Jesus' body is missing. She's already gone and told Peter and John and the other disciples. Uh, Peter and John came running to the tomb. They knew that the tomb was empty, but they ran home again. They left as quickly as they came. And it is just Mary alone here 
to contemplate what has happened. She slows down long enough to see what and process some of her feelings. And, and sometimes it takes us some time to do that. Sometimes we feel the same kind of pain that Mary felt, but like the disciples, we're running off to the next thing before we've had a time to really process what's happened, to reflect on what's going on. In Mary's case, Jesus had brought her incredible hope, but now it feels like that hope is gone. She had felt disappointment in his arrest. She had felt pain and sadness in his crucifixion. And now he's dead and the tomb is empty and it feels like hope is gone. And she slows down to process all of the the feelings and the confusion and the sadness that, that comes with this event. She had felt a number of things, but with death, it feels like those disappointments that she felt now were over. It felt like they had become cemented. They had become final. And it's the finality of death that she is struggling with here right now. And the confusion of just what has happened? Where is this body? What's going on? When we slow down to think about what is happening in her life, we recognize that there are, in all of our lives, things that we mourn. It's not just Jesus' death that, that is mourned. We, we feel in the death of anyone close to us the pain of that loss. We feel in every death something of the pain of death just in general. It makes us recognize, again, if we slow down long enough to consider it, our own frailty, our own vulnerability. We know that death is something that will touch all of us, and so with each death, we feel some of the sting of it, some of the the pain of it. And again, Mary reminds us here to slow down and process that, to try and understand what it is that is going on. In Mary's case, she's likely wondering what's going to go, what's going to happen with, without Jesus? What will become of her life now that he's gone? How am I going to cope now that he's not there? Again, Jesus is the one who, who healed her from those seven demons. With Jesus gone, will they return? Will she lose her way? Will life ever be the same? She slows down to process some of those thoughts. Many of you heard of the name Viktor Frankl, who uh, was in Nazi prison camps during the war. And he became a student of people's reactions and, and, and studied how people responded to great crisis. And one of the things that he noted was that just after Christmas was a time when many people died. They, they died in greater numbers right after Christmas because many of them lived with hope and expectation that with Christmas, they would, would come their freedom. They, they pinned their hopes to a particular event. Maybe when Christmas comes, then they'll let us go. Then they'll let us free. And when that hope came and went, when the day passed and they realized they weren't going home, that with it, their hope died. They felt that it was end. It felt very final. And with their, the, the loss of their hope became, came with it 
the loss of their will to live. And, and with death, that's what often we can feel like, that it feels like an end and we don't know how we're going to go on to the next step. And we need to slow down and process some of those things. In, in verse 12, Mary spots two angels. And in Scripture, what usually happens when people meet angels is they're overwhelmed, they're, they're, they're amazed, they, they feel a sense of awe and wonder. Only here, Mary's confronted by the two angels and she barely seems to have time for them. All she can think about is Jesus. They, they are uh, asking her a, a question and she's really just thinking about Jesus. When they don't have answers about Jesus' whereabouts, it says she turned around in verse 14. She turned, like, you have to be pretty bold to, to have two angels come and appear before you and you turn your back on them. But it's a reminder to us that when you are face to face and you seriously confront the finality of death and the pain of death, not even a religious experience is, gonna, is going to change that. You can have a profound spiritual experience. You can come face to face with some angels and it's not going to make things go away. Can't undo the pain that we feel. Before we leave the angels, though, we need to hear their question. In verse 13, they ask Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? In verse 15, we hear the same question on another person's lips. Again, Woman, why are you weeping? Followed by, Whom are you seeking? It's a reminder to us that tears need to be questioned, not just wiped away. Uh, often tears are pointing to something. They, they are trying to show us something. It might be show, showing us something about ourselves, something about our circumstances, something about what we believe in a particular situation where we have pinned our hopes. In Mary's case, her tears reveal a failure to really grasp Easter hope. She doesn't really get it. She doesn't really understand what's taken place in front of her. And so her tears are pointing to a dilemma a lack of understanding. Her, her, her tears show that she has failed to grasp the hope of Easter. What she's seeking is actually right in front of her. And if she could come to terms with who it is that is right in front of her, the tears would cease. The tears would be replaced with joy. But she can't see. And her tears point to that. I wonder if you've shed Mary's tears. I wonder if you slowed down long enough to consider the reality of death, the pain that comes with a sense that death is the end, that it is final, that it, it brings to closure this life. I wonder if you've thought through those things. Or if, like the disciples, rushing in, seeing the empty tomb, they run home again and they're off to the next thing. I wonder if you've slowed down long enough to really confront some of the things that have brought for Mary deep pain and sadness and created a dilemma. We do that, in, and, and Scripture, I believe, encourages us to do that, not so that we would be brought down, but if we fail to come to terms with the, the painful reality that death presents, we will not understand the amazing solution that Easter gives. And so there's that call to enter into Mary's tears. 
But next, I'd like you to consider whether you've truly met Mary's Savior. Because if death feels like cement to our relationships, then, then a resurrected Savior has the power to dissolve that cement, has the power to undo the finality of death. Have you met Mary's Savior? I'm not sure who you would appear to. If you, were, if you were Jesus and you had just come back from the dead and you know what had happened uh, in the days leading up to the crucifixion and how people had plotted against you and conspired against you and jeered and humiliated, it, it, there's a sinful part of me that if I was in Jesus' shoes and I, I was resurrected, I think I'd go straight for the Pharisees. I think I'd have a one-on-one with Pontius Pilate. I'd sit down with some of the people and I would show, like, this is, this is what it's really, I, I told you all along. I would, want to, I would want to rub it in their face. It, it says an awful lot about Jesus Christ. The very first person that he goes to is a woman who has come to terms with the finality of death feeling the pain and the grief that it can bring. It shows something of the compassion of our Savior and the priorities that he has. He comes ready to minister. He comes ready to serve her. In verse 14, after speaking with the angels, it says of Mary, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus has come ready to minister, but she's not quite ready to be ministered to yet. She's still looking for a dead body, not a resurrected one. She's still looking for Jesus' corpse, not expecting him to see him talking. It's taken her back. It's taken her by surprise. Her preconceptions get in the way of her sight. Her assumptions hide reality from her keep her from seeing what is actually right in front of her. And if we're honest, our assumptions do the same thing in our lives today. They keep us from being able to see. Reality is there, hope is in front of us, and wrong assumptions about what is possible, what is true, what I can believe, get in the way of us embracing the hope that God would otherwise hold out to us. We're supposed to feel some of the irony of verse 15. It it reads like comedy almost. Mary's in tears because she misses Jesus so much and he appears in front of her and she assumes he's the gardener. Then she says, I love this, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, like, is she some massive bodybuilder or something? Like, is Mary really thinking that she is going to pick up the embalmed corpse of Jesus Christ and carry him off single-handedly. Clearly, it's not possible. But again, she is overcome with grief. She is not seeing reality. She's not seeing things as they really are. Her grief gets in the way. Her Her assumptions cloud her vision. And again, they do the same to us as well. Have your assumptions kept you from fully accepting the Easter message? Have your preconceptions about Jesus gotten in the way of seeing him as he truly is? You still look at him as the gardener. Misunderstand who he is and what he's he's done. 
Have you tried, for instance, to spiritualize or explain away, come up with some human explanation for what the eyewitnesses declare actually happened on Easter morning? Have you met Mary's Savior? Now, in Mary's case, it takes just a word from Jesus to turn her tears into joy. All she has to hear is her name on his lips, and tears turn into joy. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, in the dim early morning light, you're in a garden, you could, you could mistake him. You, you could not see him. You could not quite make it out. It, it could be that, that, as many of you have experienced, you're used to seeing someone in one context, and then you're fine, you, you run into them in the supermarket, and you're like, I'm not used to seeing you here. I, don't, I barely can I recognize that it's the same person. Some of that could be going on. But when Jesus says her name, now she's clear. Now she knows. When she hears Jesus say her name, she feels safe and accepted and secure. It was his voice that had cast the demons from her. It was his voice that had first explained to her the good news, the kingdom of God. It was his voice that first explained a message of salvation and drew her as a disciple. And now that voice brings her joy, brings her a sense of relief and freedom. But his voice didn't bring her joy just because it was familiar. It it didn't bring her joy just because, oh, it's Jesus again. He's back. It's like old times. It, It wasn't just that. Because if Jesus came back from the dead, then death isn't the end. If Jesus came back from the dead, then he has power over death. If Jesus came back from the dead, then there's hope for all of us. There's hope beyond the grave. And so his his words and his recognizing that it is in fact him brings a deeper joy, a deeper sense of hope. It's at this point that Jesus' resurrection is intended to convince us of some of the, the incredible promises and statements that Jesus made. It confirms, for instance, the promise of John eleven twenty five. 25. Here, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. People want to present Jesus as a, a great moral teacher or, or another prophet. But to make a claim to be the resurrection, to say to someone, if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. To make those kinds of statements is either to be dangerous or to be divine. And the resurrection gives evidence, it gives proof of the reality of his words. He's saying that what he is saying is too important for people to just take it on a blind leap of faith. He wants people to see the evidence that he's provided. A once and for all demonstration, he has life in himself. He has power over death in the grave. It also raises the stakes of our response to him. We cannot any longer just refer to him, just see him, just view him as another guru. We can't look to him as just another prophet. The resurrection shows Jesus is the one who holds power 
over the grave. That's why he said in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He makes a startling claim that trusting your life to Jesus Christ is a deciding factor between life and death. It is that bold. It is that stark. And we would write a person off that said some, something so bold and so stark as that if he didn't also accompany that claim with such an incredible demonstration of his divine power. Rising from the dead, he proves he provides evidence for us to respond to and to believe in. It's also important as you look at this verse to, to, to notice he isn't saying that because someone didn't put their trust in him, the wrath of God is upon them. It doesn't say that. It says the wrath of God remains on him, showing that the wrath of God is upon all of us, not because we haven't believed in Jesus. It's, it's upon all of us because of our sin. The wrath of God is upon all of us because we've all fallen short of his glory. We've fallen short of his standard. That's true of all of us. The only question is, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, have you stepped out under that wrath of God? Have you been shielded from the wrath of God by Jesus Christ? Have you received a pardon from the wrath of God by Jesus Christ? Those are the two options and realities that are held out for us. And Easter is intended to persuade you to believe. It's evidence given for you to put your trust in to, as a basis for your coming to terms with who he is. In the moment Mary heard Jesus say her name, she knew the promises were true. She knew Jesus was who he said he was. She knew that the one who claimed to hold power over the grave could be trusted. His words could be rested in. And so our question again is, have you met Mary's Savior? Have you come to terms with this one who holds out to you life when without him there would only be death? Have you put your trust in Jesus as the one who holds power over the grave? Have you put your trust in him as the one who shields us from the wrath of God? Many of you have done that. Many of you have met Mary's Savior, but you haven't fully entered into Mary's joy. Because trusting in a resurrected Savior means letting go of an earthly one. It it means that because of Easter, we relate to Jesus in a new way, a different way, a profoundly new way that's changed because he has changed. And because the, the, he now relates to us in, uh, in a different way. When we left off in verse 16, we, we heard with just one word from Jesus, just hearing her name, Mary's tears are wiped away. She'd entered into the joy of the resurrection. But she sits where many Christians still sit today, not fully grasping the implications of this resurrected Savior. She believed in the resurrection, but just hadn't worked out some of the details. You see that, first of all, in her response to Jesus. She responds to him with a single word, Raboni, teacher. 
it was a it was a term that she used out of habit. She'd been using it with him throughout his earthly ministry. But now it feels strangely inappropriate. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead, calling him teacher just seems a little weak. But she's, she's still trying to figure things out. She's still trying to come to terms with the implications of Easter. In verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me. It's clear that at this point, she is probably down on her knees, grasping his legs, desperately not wanting to lose him again. Didn't want him to go away. Didn't want to, to, to see him disappear. She wants to hang on to this moment. She wants to lay hold of this moment. She's determined to hang on and doesn't want to let go. But Jesus says she needs to. Jesus says that she needs to let go because in holding on to him, she's in one sense holding on to the old Jesus and the old way of relating to him. She's holding on to the old and she needs to embrace the new. She needs to start relating to Jesus as a resurrected Savior, not just an earthly one. And many of us need to do the same. Now, Jesus explains to Mary that she has to let go. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He's referring to the ascension. After being resurrected from the grave, he will go on to spend another 40 days in Uh, various appearances to the disciples. He will continue to teach them. He will appear before, at one point, a group of some 500 at the same time. He will reveal himself to a number of people, and then he will, before their eyes, very dramatically and with a sign of finality, be taken up before them and return to the Father's right hand. So on one level, he's saying, you don't need to grab on to me like that. I'm going to be around for a while. I'm not going anywhere. But by referencing the ascension, he's getting her to think through the implications of a resurrected Savior and the new way that she will have to learn to relate to him. In his final days, Jesus had already tried to prepare his followers for this. He began to explain to them what the, the, new, uh, the, the new day that was coming. And he explains that it would be good news for followers of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 16, verse 7, he said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, referring to his ascension. For if I do not go away, the helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to to you. He's preparing his disciples for the fact that when he is taken up before them, when he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, they will begin to, to respond to him and relate to him in a new way. And it's a good way. The disciples would now relate to Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. So there would be no waiting waiting through the crowds to try and get a a hearing with Jesus. There would no be no longer waiting to to see if they could get a a, a moment to to ask him a question. They would no longer have to have to worry about bothering him. Is, is he too tired right now? Should we bring this up right now? There's another person that needs to be healed. Maybe that's more important. They wouldn't any longer relate to him as the earthly savior. They would now relate to him as a resurrected savior. That's why Jesus doesn't want Mary holding on to him like it's old times. It's a new day. 
He doesn't want her holding on like she's going to lose him again. He wants her to see what Easter means and how, how it ushers in a new day for us. Easter means that Jesus is always with us by his Spirit. Easter means that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Easter means that the day of Emmanuel, God with us, has dawned. And we can enjoy his constant presence. I wonder if some of you relate to Jesus believing the resurrection, but relating to him like it never really happened. Like Easter just was an event that you believe and you check off, but doesn't really change the way that you interact with him. Maybe the, a way that you could do that is a little bit like a physicist would relate to Albert Einstein. Respect him, appreciate him, believe that the things that he said was true, but he's dead. It just, there's not a lot of life in the relationship. Many people... Even Christians who, who believe in Jesus relate to him a little bit like that. They, they believe in him. They, they trust in him. They, they take his teaching seriously, but they relate to him a little bit like a dead savior. He's just not alive. And the problem is that there's no power in that kind of relationship. There's nothing personal in that kind of relationship. It's just taking up the teachings of another dead prophet. And Easter declares Jesus is very much alive. That we have a living Savior. He's with us and present by his indwelling spirit. You begin to treat Jesus like you believe in Easter when you acknowledge his presence with you throughout the day. You begin to treat Jesus like you believe in Easter when you talk to him, when you seek his face, when you remind yourself that he is here with you as Emmanuel by his spirit when you ask him to guide you or empower you, when you worship him like he hears your voice, when he delights in your heart, that's when you begin to treat Jesus like Easter really happened. As Mary began to treat Jesus like she believed in Easter, she embraced his mission to tell others. She became emboldened. She had a new confidence. She had a new sense of purpose and mission. In verse 18, by the end of the scene, there are no more tears. She's not clinging to Jesus' feet anymore. There's not the anxiety that, that maybe it's going to disappear. What, what am I going to do then? That worry has been replaced with confidence. Now there's a sense of energy. She's motivated by mission. There's boldness in Mary. And she announces to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. The tomb's not just empty. Jesus is alive. I've seen him, and I want to tell you about him. It says she told him, told the things that she had been told. Don't you want some of Mary's energy? Don't you want some of her boldness and confidence? Don't you want some of Mary's sense of, of passion and calling and mission in life? It comes with coming to terms with Easter. And, and for different people, it might mean different things. For some of you, it might mean slowing down long enough to, to really understand why Mary was crying, to enter into her tears. Mary realized all, that stake, all, all that's at stake with death. She knew that she needed a Savior. And yet, the average Canadian 
has very passing, fleeting thoughts about death, and when they come, they assume it's followed by going to that great cottage in the sky. That, that's about the extent of our average thinking about death and its implications. And the problem, again, is if you don't come to terms with the finality of death and the consequences of that, that, that follow, then you won't understand the solution that Easter is providing. You won't understand why you need a Savior. You won't understand the big deal that Jesus is alive and he has conquered the, the grave. For some of you, however, it might mean something else. It might mean just dealing with some really fuzzy thoughts about Jesus, with some really unclear thinking about who he is and what he's accomplished. You might still really need to hear Jesus' invitation to eternal life and to know that it comes only through faith in him, that this way that he has opened up is not a broad way. It's not a self-made way. He has given us an an invitation to eternal life, but it comes through trust in him. And when we come to terms with Easter, we recognize this is life or death. These are not just the words of another dead prophet. These are the words of a living Savior who has conquered death and says, eternity rests on how you respond to this offer of salvation. For some of you, though, it might mean that you just stop relating to Jesus like a dead prophet. You start relating to Jesus like you believe that Easter really happened. You let go of the earthly Savior to embrace the resurrected one. You start relating to Jesus like he's alive, like he is present, like because he is with us by his spirit, we can know him, we can draw near to him, we can draw strength from him, and we can find hope in him. Easter is the morning that turns tears into joy. So let's look to him and let's trust in him like he is the Savior who has risen, who is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the miracle of Easter. We thank you for raising Jesus from the dead to show us that there is life after death. Father, I pray that no one here this morning no one who is gathered in churches in our city or across our nation where Christ is preached and the gospel is held out. I pray that no one would go home with fuzzy thinking in this whole area of Jesus and the salvation that he came to bring. Help us to fully trust our lives to him by faith. Help us to give ourselves to him. Help us to follow him as a resurrected savior, not a dead prophet. And help us to embrace his mission to declare the wonder of Easter. For we praise you for the eternal life that is in him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.